find it and listen to it. Uh, this morning, what we want to look at more directly is Christ's commands concerning baptism and what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we get the chance, like we have this morning, to grow in our understanding of the language of our faith and the practice of our faith. So our goal this morning is to understand each of these uh, commands, each of these things we participate in, better individually, certainly, but also to understand how they relate to each other. I've had conversations with several of you at points in the past about some of the things we'll talk about this morning, because you've noticed that often as we prepare to come to the table and to share in the Lord's Supper together, that I have mentioned that unbaptized believers should be waiting to participate in communion. I know for some, it's the first time that you've heard such a claim. And so the very good and genuine question has been, why, why would that be? Why the need for that? And I hope that this morning will be helpful in that front and in some others as well. Uh, we'll begin this morning hearing a passage that we're going to spend some time in here as we begin, and that is in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah. So if you haven't already, open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31, and we'll read from verse 31 down to verse 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 is where we begin. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Maybe the most important word that you just heard as we read there from Jeremiah 31 was the word covenant. He spoke of making a new covenant with his people. And he told us a number of ways in which this is a new covenant. He said it's unlike the covenant that he'd made with their fathers. That word showed up several times in those few verses that we read. When we open our Bibles and we see the history of God's interactions with mankind, we see the covenant is the way that he interacts with us. All the way from Genesis chapter 1, there is a covenant at work. As Adam and Eve are created in God's image and are tasked, have obligations placed upon them, have promises made, they're blessed by God, 
God makes a covenant with Noah in Genesis 6 and with Abraham in Genesis 15, which is in many ways then embodied in the covenant he makes with the nation of Israel during the Exodus. Those promises then are channeled, they're narrowed into the covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7. Moving through redemptive history is a walk through developing covenants. And usually, though not always, when covenants are entered into in the Bible, they are accompanied by signs. These signs signify the realities of that particular covenant in some way. We're familiar with that notion ourselves in our own culture. We think of the covenants of marriage that we enter into and what the ring signifies in that covenant. The ring does not make me married. It is the sign of the covenant I'm in. If I take my ring off, I haven't ceased to be married. It's pointing out realities that are significant. This is the case often with the covenants that God has entered into with man. You think of the sign given with the Noahic covenant. What was that sign? It's the sign of the rainbow, wasn't it? And it wasn't just a pretty thing in the sky to remind us that something happened one time. It was a particular sign to remind us of the particular realities of that covenant. God was showing, as he described in Genesis 9, 13, that he had set his bow down in the cloud. And the very form and reality of that sign reminded us of the particular um, significances of the Noahic covenant. The sign of circumcision was given to Abraham in Genesis 17, and it signified the setting apart of the entire people as a holy nation to God. This is what signs do. Well, in Jeremiah 31, God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to his people. They know that they are sons of Abraham. They know that they are Israelites. And yet because of their generational wickedness, Jeremiah's message to them has been a message of judgment. In fact, he's told them they're going to experience the curse of all curses that God had threatened them with. They've learned that they're going to be exiled from the promised land. We read from chapter 31, but the chapters leading up to chapter 31 haven't been solely about judgment. In that very Hebrew way, a number of realities have been touched on and returned to again and again. God has used Jeremiah not just to tell his people of coming judgment, but to tell his people that because of his faithfulness, they still have reason to hope. So, for example, for one thing, he's told them that the physical exile from the land is going to be temporary. Jeremiah 25 told them that the exile is going to last for a period of 70 years. But far more importantly than that, God is telling them that he is planning to work not just to undo the visible manifestations of their punishment and curse, but in fact, he is working to undo the reason for the punishment upon his people. He is going to perform heart surgery on his chosen people, whom he will gather together by means of a new covenant. You saw it there in 3131. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Now, coming into this raises for us three important questions about this covenant that we're going to spend some time asking and answering. We need to have these clear in our heads. They are these. Number one, who belongs to this covenant? Number two, what is distinct about this covenant? And then number three, and especially for our purposes this morning, how do the signs of that covenant display what is distinctive about that covenant? First question first, who belongs to this covenant? Well, you just heard an answer in verse 31, didn't you? He said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Israel and Judah are the names of the divided kingdoms of Israel. You remember when Israel broke into two kingdoms following the death of Solomon. Put them together, like it is done here, and you have the 12 tribes of Israel, don't you? You have the offspring, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the physical offspring of Abraham. That's what makes them significant, isn't it? But we understand that that line that is represented in the 12 tribes represents not just the physical offspring, but the line of promise. If you remember your Old Testament history, you, you know that Abraham's firstborn son was not Isaac, but Ishmael. Ishmael, who, along with his mother, was cast off, was not a part of this promised line through Sarah. Simple physical descent from Abraham does not include one in the promises of God. The line of promise is what matters. And what we find in the New Testament is that while there are certainly multiple descendants for Abraham, what matters entirely is whether they are united to the true seed of Abraham or not. And that seed is singular. Galatians chapter 3 comes to us and says that the promises to Abraham of where God has told him, I will be their God and they will be my people, those promises all hang upon the seed, which is who? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So that, to the extent that the last verse in Galatians 3 can say, I'm just listen to this, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It has shown us this so clearly that it can end its chapter with a statement like that. So when Jeremiah 31, 31 says that the new covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, we're not surprised to find him making promises to the offspring of Abraham, which have come to be clarified in the New Testament as being Jesus Christ. And by extension, any and all who are united to Jesus Christ. Now then, question two that we answer is, what is distinct about this covenant? And that's what's answered in verses 32 to 34 in several ways. Verse 32, it's different than the old covenant that was made with Israel. How so? He says, that was a covenant which they broke. Already there, he's beginning to explain what will be new about the new covenant. Verse 33, what is distinct? He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their heart. This is the reason why the brokenness of the old covenant 
somehow marks a covenantal difference. In this covenant, God is actually putting his law within his people by this covenant. With the result that, verse 34, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is a line that we see throughout the Old Testament. God has been saying this ever since the days of Abraham. It has always been his plan that his work has been aiming at and pointing to, to create a people for himself who belong to him, not just outwardly, but inwardly. But here's the difference. The old covenant in making a people in the world had no power in itself to bring the world out of the people. It set the people apart from the world, but the covenant was powerless to bring the world out of the people. This is precisely what's new in the new covenant. In this covenant, the covenant members will have his law written on their hearts. They will belong to him, not just externally, but internally. Verse 34, how much of this covenant community? He says, and no longer. Now notice, he's still describing and defining what this new covenant is consisting of. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This will not be a covenant community, in which some members of the covenant know the Lord, but others don't, and they need to encourage their neighbor, their brother in the covenant, to know him. They will all know him because they will all have experienced his love and his forgiveness. It's really incredible. I mean, you spend enough time in these verses, you forget that you're in the Old Testament right now because we have this amazing place where he is pointing us to exactly what is coming when Christ comes and fulfills all things, when all of God's promises become yes and amen in him. Now, we've asked, who is this covenant made with? And we've peeked into the New Testament in order to say, finally, that it is made with the true son of Abraham, the inheritor of the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's made then with anyone who has been united to him. It establishes a community, a new covenant community, full of regenerate members, full of people whose sins have been forgiven. We need to see one more thing before we start talking about the signs of this covenant. Would you look forward with me for a moment? Go into the new covenant. Go into the New Testament. Uh, first to the book of Luke. Let's hear our Lord speak in two places. First is Luke 22, verse 20. Remember as I read this that Jeremiah called this forthcoming covenant that he was writing about, he called it the new covenant. It's the only place in the Old Testament that mentions a new covenant by name. Then in Luke twenty-two twenty, 20, we read this. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now we'll think about the fact 
that he's instituting the Lord's table here in a minute. Right now, I want you to notice that he is drawing a direct line from his shed blood to what Jeremiah called the new covenant. He is, after those that, that name is given once in the Old Testament to describe the promise of what God is going to do in an utterly new covenantal reality. Now Jesus puts those words in his lips and he draws the line not just to himself, but to his blood shed. Look at one more place now in the book of Matthew, Matthew 26, 27. This is where Matthew's describing this institution of the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, 27. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I read that one in addition to Luke, because not only does he here connect his blood to what he calls the covenant, and we just heard from Luke that this is speaking specifically of Jeremiah's new covenant, but here also he connects his blood, you notice, to exactly what Jeremiah 31 told us characterizes the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins. So let's draw some conclusions then. Who is the head of this new covenant? Jesus is. Who belongs to this covenant? Jesus does. And if anyone else is too, they must be united to Jesus. What will be true of any who belong to this covenant? Well, their sins will have been forgiven. But why? Their sins will have been forgiven because Jesus' blood will have been poured out for them, upon them, washing them clean. They will have had spiritual heart surgery performed on them. Blake read the description of this reality that appears in Ezekiel 36. Not naming it as new covenant, but clearly describing the same new covenant promises. Where God promises to remove these people's hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. This is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And my friends, this is what the new covenant community is. Now, here's the next question then. The third question. The last question. The question we spend the remainder of our time considering this morning. And, and it's what brings in the sacraments or the ordinances. The question is, has God given any signs to accompany this new covenant? And if he has, how do they signify the distinctives that we have just been reading about? Remember, a sign doesn't just create a, a, a visual for the sake of the visual. The sign is intended to point us to the distinctive realities of that covenant. So has he given us those signs? And if so, how do they serve that purpose? In fact, God has given us signs to accompany this covenant. Really, the best way to describe what signifies the realities of the new covenant is to, we should begin to answer that question by pointing to something invisible and internal which is to say the true sign of the new covenant and its presence is a circumcised heart, isn't it? Just like circumcision of the flesh is what signified the old covenant, it is in the presence of this heart work, what the Bible calls a circumcised heart, that reveals this reality to exist. 
But we all understand that kind of heart transformation is an internal reality, isn't it? It's not an external reality. And by definition, covenant signs make visible the realities that they are pointing to. And so God has given us visible signs to accompany and represent the realities of the new covenant. As we've said, that's what the ordinances of baptism and communion are. And you're hearing me go back and forth between the terms ordinance and sacrament. I really don't have strong feelings either way. In in church history, uh, there have been some who have been hesitant to use the word sacrament because of its origins and its, its use within the Roman Catholic system. It created for them the notion that these things actually dispense grace to us, regardless of whether there is saving faith present in us or not. And in an effort to remove ourselves from that, some have wanted to insist on the word ordinance. That's a very good caution for us to have. But if, if, we, if we understand that we're not doing that, there's nothing wrong with the use of the word sacrament itself either. But this is what these ordinances or sacraments are, baptism and communion. What each one of them do is they visibly signify some aspect of a person's belonging to this new covenant. So let's think about these this morning. First, consider baptism. And it is quite right that we would begin with baptism. Because baptism signifies, in particular, a person's coming into union with Christ. It does not bring that person into union with Christ any more than my wedding ring makes me married. It points to the coming into union with Christ. Let me just think of what the imagery is showing us. The event itself points to our death and our rebirth with Christ as we go under the water and then rise up out of it. It's the very point that Paul makes concerning it in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, where he wrote this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So closely is the baptism symbol connected with death and regeneration that the early church often spoke in language that was extremely direct to that effect, and some might even suggest perhaps too direct. For example, one of the earliest creeds of the church a creed that we confess together regularly, the Nicene Creed, uses this kind of language. It says that we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. Now, there is a right way to say that and to mean it. That's not an inappropriate statement. But you can see how such language may well have come to contribute to the Roman Catholic error of baptismal regeneration, where they believe that baptism itself actually washes away sin. That is obviously a grave error. That's not what happens in baptism. But it's an error. Think about the reason. It's always interesting to look at mistakes and to go deep and try to understand what are the conditions present where that mistake would take place. It's an error that could happen precisely because of how directly our baptism points to the realities of our conversion. 
when we were brought to spiritual life from the dead. We see it in even the visible displays. Now take all of what we've just said and compare that to the covenant sign of the Lord's Supper. It does not symbolize our entrance into the community of God's people, does it? What it symbolizes is our ongoing enjoyment of the benefits of that community. We come together, gathered as a family, to the table of God himself and feast together, remembering that the very food that is given to us is the food that has been given to us. As Christ was was brought up on the cross for our sake. This is what the symbol points to and symbolizes. And if you can see the realities that those signs signify, then you can see why there is a proper logical order to the enjoyment of those symbols, to the participation in those symbols. The Lord's Supper, here's one way you could think of it. The Lord's Supper is celebrating and enjoying the benefits that baptism publicly marks my entrance into. To be invited to the table is to be affirmed and encouraged in your profession of faith. We are pledging again and again as we share at the Lord's Supper. We're pledging our communion, our fellowship, not only with Christ himself, but with each other as his people. So as you eat and drink at the table, you're surrounded by fellow believers who are saying to you, I'm with you. As you are with the Lord, I'm with you. As a Christian, never should we feel less alone in our Christian walk than when we sit in a room full of people that share the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and share in this supper together. That's why the Lord's Supper is such a powerful witness to unbelievers. They are meant to watch those elements pass them by and to see those elements unite a group of people together in a bond that is not of this world. Just one of the ways that the church becomes a city on a hill and a beacon of light to a people living in a dark and dying world. And we, I think, should add to that too. It's one of the most visible signs of God's judgment upon those who have been excommunicated from a church. They are barred from the table. And so the very picture of safety, the very picture by which we encourage each other in our faith, becomes a picture highlighting their separation from Christ and their need for repentance and restoration. These are important things for us to understand that we are doing, that we're sharing in together every time we come to the table. But maybe in particular for this morning, a point that I would emphasize is this. If the Lord's Supper exists in part for us to say to one another, I see you, my brother, my sister in Christ. I see God's work in you. If it exists to publicly encourage each other in our faith, and if baptism is the initial moment in which a believer publicly announces that he or she belongs to Christ, And so, to us as his people, then does not putting communion before baptism get the pictures exactly backwards? Imagine building the upper floors of a building before laying down the foundation. Baptism can be likened to laying the foundation of one's 
public spiritual journey with the people of God, marking the, the beginning of that, uh, of, uh, of that relationship within the church. Communion, on the other hand, represents the ongoing sustenance and fellowship within the established community. And I would suggest to you that performing the second action before the first disrupts the natural sequence of events and therefore undermines the symbolic meaning and purpose of both rituals. This, I hope, is helpful context for you to have heard me walk through so that in these mornings when we come to the table and I make a statement like that, that this is for believers, and in particular, this is for the recognized, gathered people of God, those who have not just placed their faith in Jesus Christ privately, but have come publicly to name his name in the way that he has prescribed to us. So before we transition to the Lord's Supper, I would take what we have done this morning and what I hope we have seen this morning and draw a conclusion. It's a particular conclusion that the church in our time does really well to stare at in the face. It's that when Christ spoke of his conquering, his redeeming work, his work as our Savior, when he spoke of that in Matthew chapter 16, he described it in a particular way. He said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. My friends, when he unites us to himself and joins us to his people, and we gather together in submission to him and for the worship of him, we are not participating in something that we came up with ourselves, or that is trivial, or that is optional. We gathered together in Jesus' name, are rightly to be called an outpost of heaven in this life, an embassy of the kingdom of God in this world. And it is our duty to discipline our minds so that we would think that way about what Christ is doing, not just in us, his individual people, but in and through his people united to each other. These things that we do together when we gather on the Lord's day, they are full of rich significance. And may we come more and more to see them as they are so that our very affections can be sanctified in truth. This is our prayer this morning. Would you join me in praying? Father, we... We marvel at the, at the many ways that you, as you bring us time and again together and bring us before your word, the many ways that you sharpen us, that you grow us. And we thank you this morning for the opportunity to be reminded of exactly what you have done, not just in saving us and bringing us into the kingdom of your beloved son, but in joining us together with one another building us up into a holy temple unto the Lord. We thank you for the reminders you've given us this morning of the ways that we 
are to visibly reveal and declare the realities of your kingdom. And God, I pray for us as, as one local body of so many. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we work more and more to walk in such a way that would, that would proclaim Christ to all who see. We thank you for the, not just the beauty, but the benefits of the activities, the signs that you have given to us to share in and to take part in. And we ask you, Lord, to grow us in our thinking that we would understand these things rightly, such that we would even prepare ourselves for them beforehand. As we know, for example, that every, uh, every second Sunday of the month, we are coming together to the table. Lord, would you give it to us to see that day coming with excitement, to prepare ourselves for it. So that more and more, better and better, when we're here sharing together, we would look around and be able to stand in awe, not just at what you are doing and have done in us individually, but what, in what you are doing in and through our brothers and sisters individually, and in and through all of us together, as you, Lord, you have brought us together into this family. Thank you, God, for your kindnesses to us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is normally the time when we transition to the Lord's Supper. There is perhaps not much more that we uh, need say in preparation for the Lord's Supper. But let me share with you uh, one thing, and I'll ask you, um, well, no, I won't ask you that question yet. Um, <laughs> pardon me. Uh, I would share with you this, and if you've been here with us for long, you have heard this many times. We often read together from the Heidelberg Catechism as it describes us in coming to the table. We have appreciated the language because it describes this in a unique way, in an encouraging way. It says this, describing a Christian, Christians as we come, it describes us as those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Friends, can you hear in that the manifold blessings of the Lord's table for God's people? It strengthens and encourages us. It fixes our attention, again, away from ourselves and instead onto the one who has been victorious for us in our place. And as our collective attention is cast there, we, as God's people, are strengthened.